Hello and welcome to series four, episode 13 of Dad Educates Daughter. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Dad. You okay? I'm good, thank you. So we're on to episode 13 and I just need to go back to episode 12. Oh, okay. Because it wasn't until after I thought, oh, actually. So we was on about um, Lionel Richie. Yeah. Being probably one of the top American singers because of the, yeah. what he'd achieved. Yeah. And we were discussing others and saying, you know, probably he's better than like Billy Joel and Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder and, yeah. you know, what have Don't you. tell me one of these is bigger than him. No, no, no. Oh, we missed out Prince. Oh, yeah. So we said like Michael Jackson's obviously, you know, and then Michael. probably Lionel Richie's not, but I, Prince would have to be number two. Yeah, no, he would. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, just put on record that we've completely forgotten Prince. Yeah, and, I forgot Prince. Yeah, I would definitely say Prince is bigger than Lionel Richie. Um, mm. Although Lionel Richie is still, you know, a big... big oh, yeah. Um, Oh, but, a big yeah. star over not, that. For me, he's um, he's not bigger than Prince. Yeah, because you've got Michael Jackson was like the king of pop. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then um, was it? Didn't Prince have a name like? Uh, no, not actually, really. I thought he did, but maybe it's just because his name is Prince that makes him up there. No. But yeah, Lionel Richie isn't that big. Okay. Well, he is big, but not that big as Prince. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although Prince was very small as a person. He wasn't at all. Anyway, moving on to this week. Episode 13, you had Alexander Mm O'Neill, Julio Iglesias, Mm -hmm. Paul Hardcastle, Falco, Mm -hmm. Jan Hammer, and Divine. Yes. So how did you find it this week? Okay. Was... So one thing I've realised, now we're 13 episodes in, so yeah. many soloists have um, Christmas songs. I've never listened to so many Christmas songs when it's not Christmas. Um, but just like a little, I don't know, little recap of the soloists. I am really loving the soloists. Like, this isn't just this week. I mean, like, as a whole. You know, we're over halfway now. Mm-hmm. So, I like, I just had, like, not an epiphany, but, you know. It's just so different to the groups. Like, the groups were very intense, whereas soloists have a nice mixture in their songs of, like, those chilled-out vibes, and then, like, you're upbeat. And I just feel like there's a lot more... Um, within one soloist, whereas one band would find what they like, they'd all go go for it, and then if they didn't like it anymore, they'd split up. Um, but you love to play with me. You know, I have some amazing weeks. And then you end up with some right dodgy weeks, like this one. You know, this week started off really strong and then really strong, and then something weird happened midway through. And you should know what I'm on about because of the people that you've given me. But if not, you will find out. But yeah, it just went a bit weird. Um, 
but yeah I struggle with some and I, I think I struggled with some in the bands as well though I just don't understand how some made it in the British charts it just baffles me but hey ho hey ho how many number ones then I want to say none Ooh, I went with none. none. Yeah, I went with none. I don't think any were like big, but I think if there is going to be one, well, then I'd say it. It might be. Is it Jan Hammer, not Jan Hammer? Jan Hammer. Yeah, I feel like he might have one just because of the songs that he's got. But I don't. I personally don't think there's any number ones. I don't think there's any that big. Three number ones. Okay. Yeah. Don't know where they will be. Like, honestly, could not tell you. I reckon Jan Hammer would, might have one with the two that he's got. Um, but I can't see. I just don't know where the other two would be. It at mm. all. Could not well, tell you. Let's talk music. Let's talk Alexander O'Neill. And let's yeah. see if he has any number ones. Yeah. I mean, he's had the most songs that you've given me. Like, he's the big one of the week. But, yeah, they, there was none shouting to me this week, you know. Um, but anyway, Alexander O'Neill, I've gone with R&B. I really think he can sing. Like, he's a singer. Um, and his songs either really take their time to get in, you know, into the mood, or they just go straight in with the beat. Um, he's definitely not a performer. Like, he's, he's just a singer. Like, just, you know, he's just there on his own on stage, I think. And he's a bit of a love song singer, but he puts a catchy, upbeat tone to his songs. Uh, and his beats tell you how to feel in the song. Not all songs can do that. Like, obviously, a beat tells you how to feel, like, whether it's going to be, like, a upbeat, jolly tune or you've got to feel a bit sad because it's quiet and slow and all of that. But, I mean, like, his really taught you his music. Um, and I think he did some sort of Christmas album because he's got his obvious Christmas song called Christmas Song. But then the one after that, Thank You for a Good Year, had the same album cover because I found it hard with videos. I found it hard with videos this week in general. But with Alexander O'Neill, I found it hard with videos because a lot of them were just like album covers. There weren't really any videos made. Um, but Thank You For A Good Year had the same album cover as Christmas Song. Um, and I can't remember what it was called, but it looked, it didn't shout Christmas, but it had snow on the front. Um, but yeah, I think he was a bit of a late starter. I feel like he moved into the 90s style a bit when I saw him. Um, and he likes talking in his videos, like at the beginning. And I just feel like you can cut that out because every video that I did watch there was a bit of talking like he was telling a story and I was just like there's no need but yeah okay so Alexander O'Neill is from Natchez Mississippi US he's been active since 1973 he's a singer-songwriter and he is R&B soul funk pop and rock yeah, I did nearly say soul, but I thought, mm, don't know. I just got the R&B from him. Yeah. So, as you said, he was late. So, although O'Neill didn't come to prominence until the mid 
1980s ah, as a sure. solo artist. He actually started out in 1973 when he was 20 after relocating to Minneapolis, where he performed with bands including The Mystics and Wind Chimes, and that's W-Y-N-D. He then became a member of Enterprise for a brief time before joining Flight Time, and that's F-L-Y-T-E, and then T-Y-M-E. So, that's how things different, don't they? Yeah. Um, which was a band which included the keyboardist Monty Moore, record producers Jimmy Jam, real name James Samuel Harris III. Okay. And Terry Lewis. Now, according to Jimmy Jam, the group met with prince and morris day at perkins restaurant in minneapolis to discuss forming a band that would be called did you just say prince i did indeed is that yes. what jogged your memory about that is exactly <laughs> what jogged my memory funny enough yes when i was writing it um so yeah they met um so jimmy jam said the group met with prince and morris day at perkins restaurant in minneapolis to discuss forming a band that would be called the time and that's spelt correctly oh okay and be signed to prince under the warner brothers label but following a disagreement with prince O'Neill was replaced as the lead singer by Morris Day. Oh, so he, so O'Neill weren't part of this band. He was of he was a he was part of Flight Time. Yeah. With um Monty Moir. Yeah. And, and Jimmy Jam John. and Terry Lewis. Yeah. They then met with Prince. They, right. Okay. So and Morris weren't... Day. So O'Neill and, weren't the lead vocalist. Well, no, that but that's obviously but why they met the with Prince. Prince obviously, yeah. they met with Prince and Prince and brought along more day. Yeah. And obviously yeah, there yeah. is a, a reason for that. Right. But yeah, so O'Neill um, was replaced as lead singer by Morris Day. So O'Neill subsequently left I mean, you and would. formed an R&B band called Alexander. Oh. And recorded a couple of 12-inch singles, Do You Dare and Playroom, and then which was a double A, and then Attitude, for a Chicago independent label called Erect Records. Then in 1984, O'Neill signed a deal with Clarence Vance Taboo Records, where he did some backing vocals for other artists including the SOS band and Shirelle. In 1985, O'Neill released his debut album, Alexander O'Neill. The self-titled album was produced by Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis and Monty Moir. Oh. His original band oh, original. before he got elbowed um from flight time so three singles 
If you were here tonight, a broken heart can mend and what's missing all charted on the RNB chart in the top 20. Nice. So at least he's in the right direction where he wants to be. In 1987, O'Neill released his second solo album, Hearsay, which was certified gold and had the single Fake, which would be O'Neill's biggest hit single in the US when charting at number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the R&B chart. And is that his biggest to date, his biggest. like to now, or was that just at the time? That was his biggest single. Right, okay. Interesting. So, yeah, so then um, I'm just double-checking now. You've said that, but I've written down that was his biggest single. Yes, that is his biggest single in the US. Okay. So, yes. Um, Hearsay would also chart at number four on the UK album chart, where O'Neill was now enjoying greater success than over in the US. Oh, so he was becoming bigger over here. Yeah. And this was proved when single Criticize had better success in the UK than in the US. Oh, wow. Okay. So in the US... You don't get that very often. No. Well, in the US, Criticize charted at number 70 on the Billboard Hot 100. 100, yeah. And number four on the R&B chart. Okay, so at least it's still quite high on the R&B. Yeah. So O'Neill's third album was a Christmas album. Oh, so it was, okay. There you go. My Gift to You. That's what it was called. I knew it didn't which, have like, Christmas in the name. Yeah. It weren't obvious. Which featured a cover of the Christmas song, a song written in 1945 by Robert Wells and Mel Torme. And was recorded by Nat King Cole. So he covered a Nat King um, Cole song. I'm sorry, but Ain't It Mad, the music goes that far back. Yeah. Like, I think the 80s is old, but it's not. No. no. When you get to the 40s, that's mad. I wouldn't have said, but then because it's the 40s, what am I to know whether it's a cover or not? Mm. In 1991, O'Neill released his fourth album, All True Man, which was also certified gold and saw the title track reach number five on the RMB chart and number 43 on the Billboard Hot 100. And this is in now in the 90s or early 90s. While the album reached number two on the UK album chart. So he's still oh, big so in the he's UK. still big in the 90s over here. Although it sold less copies than his Hearsay album, O'Neill has released a total of nine studio albums altogether between 1985 and 2010. And what number was All True Man? Number four. So he's, all, he's wow. released the number five since 1991. And that takes up to 2010. Yeah. Wow. And in 2017, 
He re-released Hearsay as Hearsay 30. That's 30 years. 30 years, yeah. O'Neill has a star on the mural outside the First Avenue nightclub in Minneapolis. So where he's from, where he moved to, there's a star outside the First Avenue nightclub where he probably That's sang. Quite cute. So, yeah. That's quite cute. Wow. How well did his songs do over here? As we know well, in America, over here. Um, his biggest charting single only got to number 25. Mm. As far as the mains, obviously they've done okay in the uh, R&B, but... Can... Can we really compare the American charts to the British? Because one, say like if you get, I feel like if you get 25, like placing 50 or below in the hot, like 100 billboards, that's really good. Whereas 50 wouldn't even make it onto our chart. No, no, no. Do you know what and I you're mean? Right. Like, it's hard to compare sometimes because yeah. yeah, 25 is... It doesn't sound that good, but when you when you look at it out of one hundred and a bigger country, it is. Yeah, it's really hard. And that's why then... it'd be a good idea to know what the sales were. Yeah, yeah. In each country, because that yeah, would give you a more. That would give you more in you know, depth. Although, again, you're going to have more sales in America because you've got more yeah. people to buy it. But yeah, yeah, it's it is a hard it... one to know. But still, either way, if he does, like, he ov was obviously bigger over here with what you're saying anyway. But sometimes it's really annoying to try and compare the American charts when you just, when you just think. Yeah, because there is so much more competition. Yeah. yeah. So, so, like, I think it's, but then sometimes I think it's harder to get in the top 40 because it's only 40. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So... I don't know. But, yeah, like you say, it's obviously bigger over here anyway, so I am intrigued where they all come compared. Okay. So, 1985, if you were here tonight, number 13. Okay. It was calm, smooth, you know, it weren't, it weren't the best opening to my week. Um, and it had the same tempo throughout, so that weren't, weren't an up there one, to be honest. Okay, well, that got to number 17 on the R&B chart in America. Okay, that's not, that's not bad either. So, also 1985, Saturday Love, number six. Oh, that's good. Do you know what, though? The female vocals did this one justice. It's a really good duet. Um, so, th that's with Sherelle. I thought I recognised Sherelle. He's done two with her. Yeah. Um, chorus is quite repetitive. And the so it was a really good song. Not going to lie, it was nearly my favourite. The thing that let it down was the repetition in the background of it constantly being like, I can't even remember how the song goes. Um, but it's like Saturday love and then it's like Friday this, Saturday this, Sunday, like... And it just repeats it over and over. And I'm like, I'm trying to listen to these two good singers here. Could you not? So that was a bit annoying. But that wasn't up their song. So that was his second best song in, in uh, second best hit in America. It got to number 26 on the US. Over billboard. here it got number six. Yeah, and it got to number two, though, on the R&B. But his placings on the R&B chart really prove he is an R&B artist. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. So next we have his biggest hit in America. Yeah. 1987's Fake. Over here, it only got to number 33. It was then re-released in 1988 as Fake 88 and got to number 16. Oh, I did back, back the second time round. So, yeah. um, it's very fast paced. Like you kind of have to keep up with it. Got a good beat and is a head bopper though. So as I said, that was his biggest hit in America. It did get to number one on the R&B. And as okay. I say, number 25 on the Billboard. Mm-hmm. So next, we have his biggest hit over this side of the Atlantic. Oh, okay. 1987's Criticize got to number four. Four. That's not bad. The same as on the R&B chart. I feel like I recognise this chorus, but I don't recognise the rest of the song. Mm. Um, and it's, his, his voice isn't as soft. It's a really nice song, but his voice has changed a bit. And I, I don't know. I wish he, because he's got a be- like a, a, a stunning voice. Like I said, he's really a singer. Um, I just didn't like the change in his voice in this song particularly. Okay. 1988, Never Knew Love Like This, featuring Sherelle again. Mm-hmm. Uh, got to number 28 in the US. Uh, number two on the RMB. Number 26 over here. Okay. See, this one's really catchy. Again, I think the female vocals carry it a bit, but they do work really well together. I think they should have done more together. Okay. 1988, The Lovers. Didn't chart in the US and only oh. come a lowly 41 in the R&B chart. Oh. Over here, it got to number 28. See, that's where it proves that he's bigger. Hmm. Um, this one's very upbeat, catchy. It's a good piece of music. Like it's a solid piece, I think. Um, that's like I said. Like I said, um, his music really sets a tone. He's got. He really. He knows how to piece. And I don't know whether he has anything to do with it, but you know, like the actual music that he sings to, mm. like the beats and everything, they're done really well with his songs. And whether he has anything to do with that, but either mm. way. They're really good. Okay. That's normally, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if he's a musician as such. He's mm. more a singer songwriter. Yeah. So you'd think that's more down done for him like by the, the producer label. or whatever. Yeah. Um, 1988 still. What can I say to make you love me? Again, it didn't, didn't chart in the US and really bombed as far as the um, R&B chart at number 68. Over here, it was number 27. Okay. This was my favourite. It's a dance song. It really gets... I don't know what it was about this one, Um, because he had some other good ones, but this one just stuck with me. Um, And I really think, like, like I said before, the piece of music that's with it and just the way that he sings i think this was like an all-round good fast-paced good feeling song okay 1988 again this time a double a christmas song and thank you for a good year got to number 30 
Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. I weren't a big fan. These two didn't really need to be in here. One, because thank you for a good years. Just as it, it's like the same song. Um, it's just the same vibe, same feel, same like tone, everything. It's very similar to Christmas song. Um, and Christmas song just isn't very Christmassy. And it made me quite sad, to be honest. It's not very jolly. Um, it is quite beautiful in the lyrics and it's very soft, but yeah, for Christmas songs, they let me down. Okay. Nineteen eighty-nine hit mix. The official bootleg mega mix. Um it was only really released in Europe. Oh, okay. Um and over here it got to number nineteen. The only problem I have with this one is I was basically listening to songs that I'd already had. Yeah. And it was very long. And I was like, have I have I done something wrong here? Like, when I'm listening to this blind to begin with in my car, it's very hard to know whether it's accidentally skipped a track and gone back to the beginning. But I'm there looking at the um, like my dashboard and I'm like, right, okay, still on hit mix. But I'm sure I've heard this song. And I was like, is it is it frozen? So that was a bit annoying. It's just a remix. Like I could have yeah. didn't need that. No. Okay, and then lastly, from 1991, from his his album, as I said, it's the uh the lead single, All True Man. Into got to number eighteen. Oh, wow. Did get to number forty three on the billboard and it got to number five on the R and B. Okay, but considering this is now going into the 90s and he's hitting the same kind of um, chart positioning, shows that he's got that following and he's found mm. his place. Um, and I really do think he knows what he's doing. And as much as I at the beginning I said with Soloist, there's a nice mix, he's R&B to the core, but he's still got that mix um, of songs in there, like even a Christmas song, but not a Christmas song. Um, yeah. All True Man was a slow start and I weren't too sure on it, but it built up as it went on and it was it was it just tied him tied him in, to be fair. Um mm -hmm. if I didn't have hit mix it would have been um the perfect tie-in. Whereas hit mix yeah. through alphabet. But um yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a nice ending. That was mm -hmm. nearly my favourite, and I'm quite glad mm -hmm. it weren't now because it weren't eighty. Yeah. Okay, so no number ones for Alexander O'Neill, and we've still got three to find. Three find. Okay. As we move on to Julio Iglesias. Yeah. I I put his genre as classical because I don't know what he could possibly be, Dad. So my first feelings about this guy, the first two songs, well, technically the first three songs are not English words in the title. So I was like, okay, usually a not English song is more down a classical route. So this was before I was even listening. And I thought, he's not going to be singing in English. So I was worried. And then I listened to him and I'm like, okay, he's got very in nature about him but it's very hard to listen to when you don't have a clue what he's saying a clue um so i'm intrigued as to where he's from because 
because he's he can't be British um, or American. I mean, he could and just been brought up. But anyway, it, it was very odd because they're not in English. And as much as it was very calming and it was beautiful, and I do find songs in other languages quite nice, but it's a bit hard to listen to when you only know one language. Mm-hmm. And he's just a suit man. Nothing really about him. He just sings his song in a suit to an audience. Okay. So, Julio Iglesias from Madrid, Spain. Okay. Oh, hang on. I'm an idiot. His name shouts Spanish. I did wonder why you didn't think Julio. (laughs) Yeah, no, I didn't. Until now, yeah. when you said he's Spanish, yeah, so he's on. been active since 1968. Wow, he's a fun. singer songwriter, yeah, and his music genre is Latin, Latin pop, okay, dance pop, and adult contemporary, which I suppose could be classical, mm. yeah, that's true, like contemporary, mm. so. Iglesias started out as a professional footballer, goalkeeper at Real Madrid. Although he never played for his home team, he did play for Plus Ultra between 1960 and 1964. I'm sorry, how do you go from being a footballer to a singer? So, here we go. His football career was cut short when he was involved in a car accident in 1963, which smashed his lower spine and left his legs permanently weakened. He was unable to walk for two years. Bloody hell. And required therapy several years after. While recovering, a nurse called Eladio Magladin... Mag... Mag... Delano gave him a guitar so that he could recover the dexterity of his hands. Oh, okay. So as like a physio type. Yeah. So in learning to play, he discovered his musical talent. Oh, so you telling me this guy had never sung on the shower before and thought, got a bit of a voice on me there. Mm, Obviously not. Not showering right. <laughs> By 1968, he won the Benidorm International Song Festival, oh, wow. a songwriters' so event into... in Spain. So he leapt right into that then, didn't he? Yeah. But then I guess if you've gone football, he's probably a very dampened, going into himself, got to watch his mental health. This nurse has helped him right out. So he's going to pick himself back up and go try something else, isn't he? He can't do yeah. football. So in 1979, that's 10 years now after, after, after the, the Benidorm. No, oh, the, the crash after, was in oh, 1963. No, wait, yeah, after the... But even after winning after the, the, um, the award thing. songwriters yeah, yeah. event. So, yeah, he moved to Florida. Oh, okay. And signed a recording contract with CBS International where he sang in different languages, including French, Italian, Portuguese and German, as well as English. 
That's just showing off. And obviously Spanish. Mm. Two years later, in 1981, he released his debut album, Danina Amajur, with the album cover having a picture of Iglesias with his daughter, whom he dedicated the album to. Cute. The album was the first Spanish-language album to be released in the States by Columbia Records. Okay. To capitalise on the singer's rising popularity, it was recorded in five languages, with the American version retitled From a Child to a Woman. A cover of Begin the Beguan. I think that's how it's said, I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you because I, I don't know where that lyric comes in the song. No. So Which say. was originally written by Cole Porter in 1935, was to be Iglesias' first hit single. Iglesias would go on to be recognised as the most commercially successful Spanish singer in the world and one of the top record sellers in music history, having released 38 studio albums Shut between up. 1969 and 2017 but can i clear up is that just like he's he's released 38 albums or is that he's released 38 albums and there's 38 because he's done them in five different languages no so no no 38 album. studio albums okay so the different languages don't count no Right. No, that's just been re-recorded. Not that he could, but so like he's, he's re-recorded the same it to yeah album just in a different language. Yeah. So if you include those, it. he's done even more. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I'm like, is there yeah. so many because he's had to re-record no. all of these? Wow, that's a lot, then, isn't it? Yeah. Like 38 on its own, but then the ones that he's re-recorded for different languages. Yeah. So as I say, that's between 1969 and 2017. That is quite a big span, though, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. But still. But that's still a lot. So in 1988, he won a Grammy Award for Best Latin Pop Album for Unhomba Solo. And obviously his son, Enrique Iglesias, has gone on to be as big a star as he was. Enrique Iglesias, who I do know... Is his Who sings in English is his son. Yes. That's mad. Yeah. But he doesn't really sing, well, unless he only releases the English ones here. Yeah. Like the, I can be your hero, baby. That guy. Yeah, we That's mad. That's his son. That's sick. Imagine saying that's your dad. Because mm. Enrique just kind of, He's done stuff, but not much. But your dad used to be a footballer and then became an artist of all these languages. Yeah. That's pretty cool. There you go. And I did... Do you know what? So when you gave me Julio Iglesias, I yeah. did think of Enrique Iglesias, but I thought, nah, they're not going to be related. Like, I thought, oh, that's been a bit, you know, that's been a bit... 
um, narrow-minded, thinking all have got the same surname and they're not English, even though it took me a while to even realise that his name's not English. Um, but last week when you gave it, I did think of that. But that's mm-hmm. quite cool. Because Enrique Iglesias is then my... Um, well, 2001 Hero was released. Yeah, so that's like, you think I was six. Yeah. I grew up with it. But then he ain't yeah. done much else bar Hero, you know. Um, he's had another number one. Oh, no, it was in Spain. Balamos. Balamos. Yeah, I think he moved out of England and focused more on maybe the Spanish. He had number one in US with Balamos as well. Oh, okay. Maybe he just didn't make it here. That was in 1999. But I only really know him for Hero. He sang a song with Whitney Houston as well. Could I have this kiss forever? That doesn't ring a bell. But he hasn't really done anything or not had any success since um, 2002. Yeah, after Hero. And when I think of Enrique Iglesias, there's no, like, the only thing that, I mean, and I know I'm rubbish at, um, I know I'm rubbish at thinking of songs, but, yeah, he, the only one I know. is. Anyway, this isn't the Enrique show. No, it's not. This is his dad, Julio show. Yes. So, 1981, begin the Baguan, where however it's said, Volva at Impaza, to number one in the UK. What? Number one. All I said about it was, it's not in English. <laughs> I feel it would be more, in- I would be more involved if it was. He has got some vocals on him, though. I'll give him that. But see, this was a hard one to base where I thought it would come because they're not in English. So it's like, how would the 80s people, how would they have taken it? Obviously, they hit it, but I didn't know whether how big they'd be. Fair enough. I mean, it is a surprise when you think of the songs that probably would have been around in the 80s, especially Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. No. That's really hard to gauge yeah. how big it would have been. Yeah. Because of no. it being that not English as well. Yeah. And but when you think in America, been... they have got a Latin bit, especially yeah. in the South. Yeah. Because of the Mexican of side the Mexican a bit and, you know, and what have you. So Brazil? It is a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's South America. So, yeah, they got this, this you know. Um, yeah. But, we um, don't. Yeah. We. It is a shock that it got to number one, but yeah, oh, it did. Enough. So fair that's enough. one of your number ones. Let's see how many more he gets. I'm intrigued now. 1982. Kuemi Michel. Voix. Yours. Yours? That just says yours. That's English. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know if it was a V. I didn't know my own writing. I was going, is that yours or yours? That's, that, that's English. Okay, yours. <laughs> Number. It's in the top ten. Oh, okay. It's in the top five. Three. It was in the top three. Number. Three. Number. Three. Oh, I thought you were going to say one then. 
Uh, Just to point out, Dad's holding up one finger <laughs> as well. God. Um, I put, so this is how you know that I was really stupid. I put another one in a different language, like as if he was singing a different language for the first one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was really hard, like, to listen to them. And I was there, like, I'm really confused. Um, I just end up, it's really hard to listen to it and stay involved. Um, and again, I've said that he has a really beautiful voice. And I have already said, I don't understand how he would fit in the charts. I don't know how he is positioning. So, yeah, it was very hard to... And I know, obviously, it's just my opinion that so I'd then go across. But my opinion is, it's hard to listen to. Like, as this generation, I think we're very narrow-minded as well. Like, unless you're... Like, my best friend, Candace, who is my age... She would go and listen. She has listened to Spanish songs, but then she's studying Spanish at university. So she's into that. Whereas, like, majority of your friends, um, we don't have that second language or that interest, so you wouldn't really listen to them. So it's really hard to gauge where this would even hit in life, let alone my generation. Okay. So next... We have 1983. A. Number 31. Do you know? you no, 1982. Amour. Yeah. <laughs> Number 32. 32. Okay, this one didn't have much to it. It was just very repetitive. So then we have 1983. Hey, and that got to number 31. Okay, this was very quiet. The music in the background takes over his voice, um, and it was just very slow. Okay. Now, also in 1983, there was a song called All of You, which was a duet with Diana Ross, which did really well everywhere apart from here oh, for some really? reason. It only did got to Diana number 43. Ross? But, um, yeah, elsewhere, I mean, it got number seven in New Zealand, sorry, Netherlands, number eight in Canada, um, number 10 in New Zealand, number 12 in Austria, and number 19 in both the US on the Hot 100 and in Australia. But, yeah. So it done really well in there. It's probably his only hit. No, sorry. He's got one more hit in the US. But that was it. That was a that there was a flop in the UK. Bad as well because it's got Diana Ross on it. Yeah. And she was a big artist. Interesting. So, yes. So then we have 1984 to all the girls I've loved before. This was his biggest hit in America at number five. Over here, it got to number 17. And that was okay. with, and that was again with Willie Nelson. Okay. Well, I thought that was beautifully sung. And I think he's very passionate about his music and it really portrays it through this song. Um, so, yeah, I quite like that one. Okay. 
And in 1988, My Love, featuring Stevie Wonder, was in the top 10. Okay. So he's back. Yeah, he is. It was in the top five. Okay. It finished at number five. Okay. Well, this was my favourite. It was just so nice hearing the two strong vocals together. And I think they worked really well. And it was nice hearing, like, the two different languages as well. Yeah. I think it was really nice. I actually nice got to number two in Ireland. Okay. So, yes. Okay. Moving on. Two. Paul Hardcastle. Yeah, this got weird. This is where it got weird. The, the, um, like the Spanish, now I can call it Spanish. Um, that singing, that weren't that bad. I was like, okay, that's fine. Then we get to Paul Hardcastle. Literally, what are you doing to me? Um, I weren't expecting this. Like... You know, you have your normal singing. You've got a bit of Spanish singing. I'll take that. It was still nice. And then this noise comes along. I'm guessing he's a mixer of some sort. And he's got a little bit of singing um, in a few of them. So I'm guessing he gets them on, like, session musicians or people. Don't know. But um, I don't, I don't have a clue what he looks like. Um, he's very 80s, like as in his music style, because of like the programming, the mixing. I think that's very 80s, and I think he's electronic, like electro pop. Um, but yeah, I have no idea who he is, what he looks like, what he's been up to, um, because the videos are either really random, and by random I mean just like objects, or there is none. Um, but yeah, he's one of those people that just makes sound and. Dad expects me to listen to it. Okay. Paul Hardcastle is from Kensington, London. He's been active since 1981. He's a musician, producer, and songwriter. Um, so he plays he's a the songwriter. He's a songwriter. He don't write any lyrics. So it, the synthesizer, yeah. keyboard, piano. So all all the um. All the keys. Keys, whatever you want to call it, yeah. And also electric guitar and bass guitar, as well as drums. Okay, yeah. He is a musician. I'll give him that. So Hardcastle began his career in 1981 when he became the keyboardist for British soul band Direct Drive. Then in 1982, Hardcastle and lead vocalist Derek Green left the group to form the duo First Light. Although they achieved some minor success in the UK charts, the project was abandoned after just two years and Hardcastle pursued a solo career. He achieved some success with his early singles, including the 1984 electro-funk instrumental track Rainforest, which charted at number two on the Billboard Dance Chart, number five on the Billboard Soul Chart, and number 57 on the Billboard Hot 100 Chart. 80s. Did people yeah. have ears? 
Like, honestly, like, and there are some things where I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. This was a beautiful piece of music. It's up there. And even ones that I'm not really that keen of on, I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a bit of 80s. I can really hear the 80s in there. I get it. And then you have these type of people. How are they getting anywhere? Because what is buying it? Their songs? But for what? you got to remember this was all, well, no, this is early. This is before house and rap and hip-hop. Yeah, and so, I don't like house yeah. music either. I don't so, get why those people are deaf and all. But so, yeah. at least house has lyrics. I just, maybe it's just me, but people that, well, I mean, I get, you know, I like a bit of jazz. Um like I go to a cafe and it's got a bit of jazz music playing. It's just like jazz instrumental. I don't mind that. So I do get, I do understand music without lyrics. Don't get me wrong. I'm not just all for singing my heart out. I may okay. come across like that. But when it's like this, I'm more, I get music without lyrics for chilling out, you know. But this is very in your face and boom, 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 boom. Why do you want to listen to that with nothing else? And it's all programmed as well. It's not really, I don't know, I just don't get it. The 80s was a weird time, weren't it? Well, as I said, he got to number five on the Billboard, um, on the soul, Billboard Soul chart. Okay? Yeah, but that's why I'm thinking, what, how? So, on the back of that, he was also nominated for Best R&B Instrumental Performance at that year's Grammys. But okay, missed out to Ernie Watts. I don't know who Ernie Who's, Watts is, oh, by okay. the way. I thought you were going to tell me then. <laughs> no, no. In 1985, Hardcastle released 19, which was obviously about the Vietnam War, um, where the average age was 19. A war ah. that is... Um, should, the America should never have got involved in. I mean, I'm not going to go into it. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, and it's yeah. very political, but obviously in America it is, you know, quite... I mean, because America right. lost. I did so, wonder um, the link because yeah. the video tells a story. And it was yeah. very interesting for a video. It's, it's true. Um, it was so, very interesting. But I was yeah. like, what? I don't, how does it link to the music? But then in yeah. my head I was linking it to the actual piece of music. But so, actually yeah. it's more 19 with you. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So the single reached number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one in Austria, Belgium, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and Germany. Wow. As well as being number one on the Billboard Hot Dance chart. The song received that year's Ivo Novello Award for best-selling single of 1985. Hardcastle's The Wizard was adopted as the theme tune for the BBC's Top of the Pops weekly chart show and oh. was used between 1986 to 1991. Why do why do I feel like we've had another song that was adopted for the Top of the Pops as well? I feel like we've had mm. another one. We did. Yellow Pearl, Thin uh, Lizzy. Yes, okay. And Majure wrote it as well. 
But also going back to 19, I feel like that's had such an impact and um, got such hard charting, high charting because of what it links to more than what it sounds like, I think. Mm. Yeah. So since the 1990s, Hardcastle has recorded several synth jazz albums Ooh, under the synonym. Oh, I can never say that word. What? Synonym. When it's a false name, or you're someone else. Right. Okay. okay. Why I write that try. down then? I, I really don't know. You I just do don't do myself any favours, do I, really? No. <laughs> so we done. Kiss the Sky with Jackie Graham and Jazz Masters. Okay. There you go. I feel like I could like a bit of jazz. I'd, I'm intrigued at how that sounds. Yeah. Weirdly, I mentioned jazz when I went on one about no lyrics as well, but yeah. So. Jazz and synth, was it? Uh, yeah, synth jazz album. It wasn't under his all? name. Wasn't under his name. Um, no. Kiss the sky. Okay, might have a look. More because I'm intrigued. Yeah. Very intrigued. So Paul Hardcastle, 1984, Rainforest. Yes. It only got to number 41 in the UK. Um, it was re-released again in 1985, but only got to number 53. But I gave you it because it was done so well in America, and obviously it was mm. what introduced it, was like it to first. us. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I thought it was very futuristic, and it was a in my as much as it was quite early, it was a mix of 80s and 90s sound in my ears. I think. Um, but like you say, I think he might have been ahead of his time, you know, like House weren't about. So maybe that's the 80s that I'm at uh, the 90s that I'm thinking of because of like the house sound and the 80s is like the programming. So maybe he was ahead mm -hmm. of his time. Okay. 1985. No, 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 19. <laughs> Got to number one. Like it did everywhere yeah. else. But Biggest no. selling single of 1985. But when you were listing them off, I was like, oh, this is going to be number one. Like I say, though, I think it's just because of the background, mm -hmm. um, like of it, like the story behind it, what it's for, um, more than actually what it sounds like. Okay. It was also re-released in 2011. 26 years after it had first been released and got to number one. Mm. So music has well and truly changed. Vietnam War, people probably wouldn't even really, well, they would know about, obviously, but not youngsters. Mm. But not, it got, but it, yeah. It got to number 40. So still got in the top 40. Oh. Who in 2011's buying that? That'll be all you lot still. The people <laughs> that got it to number one. I'm like, oh, I missed out on getting it that time. Let's go. Come on. Let's go get it. Because there's no way, there's no way that the generation of like, how old was I in 2011? 16. All right, it wouldn't be my generation, but 
with the generation before me is you. But you know, like the older people of my generation. Yeah. I doubt I doubt they were out buying it. No, I doubt like yeah. Laura was buying it and Tom. Mm. Yeah. Like those So this thing. I'm guessing this was on now the back would have been back of the the Iraq war. The Iraqi conflict. Don't know. I'd guess because, 2011. Yeah, but... Because 2007 was... It was 220... Twin Towers was 2007, weren't they? 2001. No. Eh? Twin Towers? When was that? 2001. Why am I thinking 2007? <laughs> I don't think anything was 2007. 2007 did it? There was something in 2007. Was that the tsunami? No, Twin I'm on about terrorists. Anyway... I don't know why it was why it would have been re-released. It's not twenty-five years; it's twenty-six years. Doesn't make sense. There must have been something going on. No, so, because that you can't tell the linking uh, unless you have unless the storytelling is at the beginning every time. You don't know the linking just by listening to the music. So I'm telling you, it's just you eighties people in the back being like, "Oh, I'm gonna get it. Let's go get it." Okay. 1985, Just For Money, number 19. Okay, well, they're singing in this one. I really like the chorus. But then it goes back to some talking. But it's a nice upbeat feel throughout the mix. Uh -huh. 1986, Don't Waste My Time, number eight. Hey, this was my favourite. Um, I love the female vocals in it. Um, and the music isn't as harsh as it's been. Like, it's not as like, do, do, do in your face kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my favourite out of them. Okay. And then lastly, 1986, The Wizard, as I say, from Top of the Pops. Well, they they um, started doing The Wizard or, or they had it as their... I don't think it was their theme tune. I think it was for just when they'd done the rundown of the charts. Right, okay. Um, and it got to number 15. Okay. Um, this gave me Halloween feels. I feel like when you were saying that it was taken on by someone, I thought, oh, I've got it here. I think Halloween is going to tell me like a film that did it, like, like a scary film or something. No. Top of the pops, but anyway, I thought it was like Halloweeny, and it's a very overload of sounds. Like there's a lot going on. No, uh, I mean I love it. I just think the song what, it's, the it's what you yeah. only love it because uh, you've grown up with Top of the Pops and heard it on there. Yeah, and that, well, I was, was going to say, forget about Top. Of, it could you could use that music, but behind anything, I don't think you could. I think it goes. Any background music with the you 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 know, especially a countdown. It's brilliant. Do 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 and this week I I suppose yeah, because I'm thinking the top of the world. I just think it's great. It is great. No. But yeah. No. I just like it. I've not even asked you. Is there anyone that you like this week? <sighs> Not really, no. I don't think so. I mean, individually, I mean, I, I, you know, as I just said, I like The Wizard. I like 19. Um, and I like some of the ones that are coming up. 
Right. Uh, I wasn't really an Alexander O'Neill fan, to be honest. He was okay. he was a big artist. Um, I did like Criticize probably out of them all, which was obviously okay. his bigger one over here. Um, I wasn't obviously a Julio any... Iglesias fan, but no. Um, no. But you've not got um, any of that. You've never bought any of their no. singles. No, no. I had nineteen, yeah. And the wizard, I think I've got. Really. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I had an album of um, Jan Hammers because it was the it, it was the Miami soundtrack album, so which he obviously contributed to. Yeah. Mm, okay. So and um, I think I've got Walk Me Amadeus as well. So yes, but no, no albums. Okay. Apart from, as I say, the Miami Sound Machine, uh, Miami Vice soundtrack, not Miami Sound, Miami Vice, uh, Miami's Sound Machine. That was a totally different group. But yeah, okay. Moving on to Falco. Yeah. We're not talking the Brazilian footballer. So I only have the two. Yeah, I can't tell you a genre. Um, and it's a bit random, if you ask me. It's not your standard music, I think, you'd hear on the chart. But it does have something going for him. And they are that bit catchy and fast-paced. Like, you kind of want to listen to him again, but more to understand it a bit more. I don't know. And his videos are very energetic, so I feel like he's a performer. Um, but, yeah, so for the two... You know, like I was like a bit like, okay, like what's the what's this guy? But I'm very intrigued by him basically. And I didn't manage this week to listen to any more, but I would listen to like I, I wanna listen to more Falco to see if he's that same energetic. But then he's only had these two in the chart, so Okay. It's very like quick, fast paced, like here I am. And you listen to more because you wanna you wanna understand it and know what he's going on about. But yeah. Wow. So Falco, born Johann Hosel. Okay. He's from Vienna, Austria. He's been active since nineteen seventy-five. He's right. a singer, musician, composer. Um so vocals, bass and piano. Mm -hmm. um, and he's new wave rock, pop, hip hop. Oh, a bit of everything. Yeah. So, Yuhan took the stage name Falco after signing a recording contract in 1981. So, although Falco had wanted to be a pop star since an early age, he was unable to join a band until after his national service with the Austrian army. Okay. So in the late 70s, he became part of the Viennese nightlife, which included not just music, but performance art and striptease. Oh, OK. He played bass guitar in a number of bands under various pseudonyms, that word again, <laughs> uh, including John Hudson and John DeFalco. It was yeah. while performing with an Austrian group that he began performing as just Falco. Okay. 
and stood out from that from that defalco guy so he's taken it it felt well i i I will be telling you later on because it took me a while to find out where he actually got it for right okay so it was while performing with an austrian group group um that he began performing as falco i just said that yeah so and he stood out through his clean-cut image as he had short hair due to his military service oh yeah and he wore suits with ray-ban glasses which were a big i don't know if they're still around to be honest but they were a big sunglasses firm in the 80s yeah. they were big they still exist you know Ray-Ban. I, that's what i was saying i don't know if yeah. they still do no, they still exist they're there. it's just i remember when you used to go abroad you used to see them everywhere it, yeah because you, you could know. get knockoffs as well yeah yeah, you can still, yeah, that's still a thing. Um, so his distinct style, coupled with his singing, led to manager Marcus Spiegel signing Falco. Falco immediately hired a songwriter, Robert Ponge, or Ponger. He's not a songwriter himself. No. Right. While he composed his own music. So he wrote the music, like composed the, the music. music. And he had a songwriter yeah. to do the lyrics. So a bit yeah. like um, Elton John with Bernie Taupin, I suppose, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. But like I think you've got a bit. You work I don't think around that. I would have said Elton John was the composer. And yeah, Bernie Taupin wrote lyrics. So, yeah. <clears throat> so his first single, Helden von Hoot, was not received well. By the music company manager Horst Bork, who preferred the B-side, De Commissioner. Falco was hesitant, as the track is a German language song about drug consumption. Okay. Uh, that combines rap verses and song, with, but with sung chorus. Ooh, that sounds up my street, you know. Yeah. Um, it is out there. What's it called? Uh, the Commissar. Dirk Commissar. The Commissar with a K. I'll send it over to you. Yeah, I've, send I it over them. to me because I don't know if you're doing it. But yeah, it. I'm probably selling not doing it a justice with my yeah, um, my Austrian. I don't think you've. Um, no, you I'm not Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. <laughs> He's better at doing it in Austrian than I am <laughs> him doing it in American. So, yeah, so Falco was hesitant. Um, however, Bork insisted. And the single became a number one in what Germany. Thomas, yeah, because yeah, he, um, he swapped them over. So he said, no, I prefer the oh, B yes, side. And yeah, so yeah. they went with that as the main single in the end. So um, it became a Not number one. Not for everywhere. No, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and Japan. Right, okay. Um, so well done, the manager. Obviously knew more than the, um, the songwriter and the, 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 um, the song composer. Yeah. So while chart, it also charted highly in several other international charts. However... It failed to break through in both the UK and the US. 
but it did become a cult record in England after. Okay. Because because obviously it hadn't charted, and as I say, it it does even appear on um, compilation, some eighties compilations. Even though it it wasn't even a hit, become a thing through like the fans in a way. While the album went on to top the charts in both Austria and the Netherlands. So Falco and Ponga, Ponja, uh, returned to the studio in 1983 to record Falco's second album, um, which was called... Now, obviously, I'm trying to um, also give the English version. It was called Jung Ruma, which is Young Romans. Fair enough. Quite straightforward. So with the two writers under pressure to match their previous success, um, even though the video for Nermitde, I think it is, I might be wrong, actually. I might have got the wrong one there. Because it's all fallen. This is an entertaining week with Dad trying to pronounce foreign words. I am. It's, it's um, not good because it's not my speciality. We can tell. <laughs> um, I've lost. I didn't write it down. Um, oh. Here we go. Hokwini. Hokwini. Right. Um, the video for it, which is in English, is called Higher Than Ever. Okay. Hokwini. Higher, Higher than, than Ever. So even though the video for Higher Than Ever was aired on Austrian prime time TV. It failed to ignite interest internationally. Okay. So, so therefore, the album only charted well in Austria, where it was obviously given airtime. Yeah, yeah. While the lead single, Young, Roma, Young Romans, mm-hmm. uh, the title track, it failed outside Austria and Spain. Oh, so... So, not not very good. Not at all. So, following that, Falco parted ways with Ponja, his his, um, songwriter, in an effort to experiment with English lyrics. Okay. So, he hired a new production team in brothers Rob and Ferdy Boland from the Netherlands. Oh, right, okay. I weren't expecting it to be from the Netherlands to be wanting to write English. Yes. Right. So he was inspired by the Oscar-winning film Amadeus. And Falco, along with the Boland brothers, wrote and recorded Rock Me Amadeus. The song went on to become a worldwide hit, reaching number one in over, in, in over ten countries. Austria. Yeah. Canada, Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand, Spain, Sweden, Germany, and even on the US Billboard Hot 100. It was also number two in Belgium, Italy, and Switzerland. Fair enough. So it was a big hit. So the only charting um, 
countries outside where it was outside the top 10 was France number 79. So a big difference when you think compared to the others, where it's at number one or number two. And the Netherlands, which is where the songwriters were from. Oh, God. And that got to number 46. It's not too bad, but still compared to where everyone else got it. Yeah, number one or number two in pretty much throughout Europe. So the follow-up single, Vienna Calling, was another international success, peaking at number 18 on the Hot 100 Billboard chart. So I think... um, his last two singles proved that um, going English was the right thing and getting yeah. rid of um, Ponga yeah. obviously helped exactly as well. what I was about to say, yeah. Um, well, his third studio album, Falco 3, charted at number 18 on the Billboard R&B album chart. Okay. R&B. His third single from the album genie topped the charts across europe although it was highly controversial when released in both germany and the netherlands as the source as the story of genie was told from the point of view of a possible rapist and oh. murderer Oh. Several DJs and radio stations refused to play the ballad. I mean, I would if that's... But is that just a... You know, you know, like when you're in English and your teacher's like, what do you think the author was trying to tell you? And actually you don't know. You're just yeah. taking a guess. You're going on a whim to get your, your marks in GCSE. Is it like one of them or has he come out and said, this is written about this? I don't know. I don't know if he has. Obviously, he has now, but whether he did at the time. But oh, obviously, right, okay. something happened. Because it, so, it, it was a success, as it said, as I, as I put. You know, it was a success, another worldwide success. Yeah. However, in Germany and the Netherlands, there was obviously controversy, yeah. controversy about yeah, it. Yeah. So, so yeah. Okay. So have we done an, a a a um an interview in one of those countries or whatever, mm, I don't know. hinted, maybe. Yeah. So in 1986, Falco released his fourth studio album, Emotional, and that included a sequel to Genie. Oh. Um, Coming Home, Genie Part 2, one year later. Interesting. As well as The Kiss of Kathleen Turner, who was an actress, funny enough, at the time, or what well, well, is an actress, and he obviously wrote a song about her, or included, I'm guessing it was her in the title, mm. and Kamikaze Kappa, which was written as a tribute to photojournalist Robert Kappa, who was a Hungarian war photographer. So although single The Sound of Music, with a K, was another international success and a top 20 US dance hit, although it failed to make the US pop charts. By this time, Falco was dangerously addicted to alcohol and drugs. Oh, took a downfall. After 1986, Falco was rarely heard of in both the UK and the US. 
But in 1988, he released the album Wiener Blut, Viennese Blood. Right. But it got no publicity outside of Austria and Germany, while the single Body Next to Body, a duet with Bridget Nilsson, the ex-wife of Sly Stallone, Sylvester Stallone, um, the single reached number six in Austria. So although Falco didn't write the song, as that was Giorgio Moroder. Right, yeah, we've heard of him. So, yeah, so um, it got to number six, and obviously everyone was, you know, he's, he's sort of back, but it wasn't him that wrote the song. It wasn't, so it's yeah. Bit of a, so, yeah, it was probably got to where it was more because of the people singing it, Bridget Nielsen and yeah. Falco, rather than the actual song but as it is yeah. it wasn't him that wrote it anyway and we all know how good Giorgio Moroder is mm-hmm. um, in 1992 Falco attempted a comeback with the album Nukflug Night Flight in English right. including the song Titanic but it was only successful in Austria okay where so he's obviously after big. Is it all yeah by That's 1995 Falco was living in the Dominican Republic. Oh. Where he worked on his last album, Out of the Dark, Into the Light. Unfortunately, in February 1998, at the age of just 40 years old, his car collided with a bus on the Dominican Republic and he died of severe injuries. Sure, that's his sadder bo- because I thought it was going to be like due to his alcoholism and drug use, but mm. that's quite sad. But... Well, you don't know if he was driving drunk. That is true. Yeah. But I wouldn't, you know, we don't know if it was his fault. You don't want to, no. assume, yeah, exactly. No. You don't want to assume anything. Um, so his body was returned to Austria and his album, Out of the Blue Into the Light, which, as I just said, he was in the middle of recording, was in, yeah. was released posthumously. In 1998, Rob and Ferdy Boland released the EP Tribute to Falco. Oh, they're his writers, aren't they? Yeah, which featured samples of Falco's music and the other tracks that were recorded, We Say Goodbye and So Lonely. While friend Nicky Lauder, the Formula One... Mm. um, successful driver um was named he named one of his louder air boeing fleet falco after falco so he had an impact on people's lives yeah so international pop art so falco is recognized as the most successful international pop artist ever to come out of austria i mean not really our competition is it probably not no (laughs) no and it has since been reported he changed his name to falco after the german skier falco wizflug but he spelt it with a k falco with a k not a c okay that's very that's a very random Yes. Well, as I said, I didn't find that out till very late. Uh-huh. 
Interesting. But yes. So yeah. So that was Falco. Short. Um had a I suppose a a, a big um career. So short career as far as England what and the US went. It went but a big high. big successful career. In, but then also um, short in the way that um it became successful very quick, but then went went downhill a bit. He yeah. went off the Dominican Republic and died. Like so it was short in that way, but it was quite successful. Yeah, certainly across Europe he was successful. Yeah, yeah. So Falco, nineteen eighty six. Rock me Amadeus. Got to number one in so many countries. Yes, it did. And I can safely say it did in England as well. I thought when you were listing them all off, I was like, yeah, this could be it. Well, my favourite out of the two, um, and it's got that bit of catchy, upbeat. So, yeah, I'll take that as a number one. But like I say, this week it was so hard to pinpoint any number ones. Mm. And this proves it because they're so random. Yeah. So this week you had a Spanish song at number one. Mm. You had a a mix, a, a mix, I suppose you could call it, not a, a um, what do you call it? Not a mix, a um, like a sample, because it had news in it in Vietnam. Is nineteen? That's a, yeah. I think it, yeah. I think I've read about it. He took things from the news from the, and programmed yeah, like, it into a song. So yeah, so that was number one, and then Rock Me Amadeus was number one. Yeah, by an Austrian. Mm. So yes, Oddly. and then also in 1986, which shows you one year really, Falco in the UK, mm-hmm. one year. Basically, Vienna calling. It was top ten, number ten. Oh, okay, so considering they were two big hits, he didn't have anything else. No, um, can't always understand him in this one. It's very fast. Uh-huh. Okay, Jan Hammer. Yeah. Two songs. Not really much to say about him because um, he just made his career off Miami Vice. Like, legit. That's it. He's Miami yeah. Vice. He's a Miami Vice man. Um, he's a producer, I think. He made his money doing the themes or whatever they are, setting the tone for the show or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see him in a video. He really enjoys his work. And he's very talented in the music, that, like it, the instruments that he plays. But yeah, not much to say about him. Um, okay. Just Miami Vice Man, what he will be further known as. So, Jan Hammer from Prague, uh, Czechoslovakia. We've got a lot of. Or the Czech Republic, as it is now. We've got a lot of, like, international. Like yes. we've had international, obviously, but I mean, like, there these are ones that's like, oh, we've not had, you know, like an Austrian, uh, like, um, Czechoslovakian, you know, not had these before. Quite interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so he's been active in the music business since 1968. He's a musician, composer, and record producer. Um, he's known for keyboards, synthesizer, and drums. And it's jazz fusion, synth pop, pop rock. Mm. 
are his genres. Yeah, I didn't have a clue on genre at all. So when the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia, Hammer's studies at the Prague Academy of Music Arts, Musical Arts, were cut short. Um, so Hammer recorded a jazz trio live album in Munich, Germany, which was released as Mama Macking, Maling by German label MPS Records. Hammer then decided to move to the United States. And after receiving a scholarship at Berkeley School of Music in Boston, he became a US citizen. So upon completion of his studies in 1971, he joined the original lineup of Mar Vishnu, Vishnu Orchestra, which was a jazz fusion band which included English guitarist John McLaughlin, American violinist Jerry Goodman, and Irishman bassist Richard Laird, and drummer Billy Cobham Jr., who was from Panama. Okay. They performed some 530 shows. What? That's mad. Before their farewell concert on the 30th of December 1973. Hammer is seen as an early pioneer of playing synthesizers, having played the mini Moog Moog synthesizer at the live at that live. Final show. He played okay. that. Yeah. Now I don't know whether he played it before then, and obviously because it was live and was a big thing, it got publicity, or he just played it in the live show. It's a bit hard to know, yeah. but yeah, but like, whatever it was, he was a pioneer. Because you think yeah. this is 1973. Yeah, yeah, this is this early. is even earlier than um oh I've forgotten their name who done the model. Craftwork. Um, the Germans, work yes. It's probably even earlier than those, or around the same time at least. Mm. So, yes. So, Hammer would go on to release a solo album, The First Seven Days, in 1975. Hammer would not only produce the album, but also recorded it at his own Redgate studio, which he'd built in his upstate New York farmhouse and had been the location of all his recordings since okay that's quite a cool um place to record yeah so he built it himself it, yeah. and he's never recorded anywhere else that's quite cool though oh. hammer then formed a duo shun and hammer with former santana and journey guitarist neil shun and they recorded the album Untold Passion in 1981 and Here to Stay in 1982. Hammer then started producing for other artists, including James Young's first solo album since leaving Styx, John Abercrombie's album Night, Mick Jagger's first solo album, She's oh. the Boss, and Jeff Beck's album Flash. 
So he did include... quite a lot, not yeah. just music wise. Yeah, well, he's got his own records, recording yeah, studio, so like he can use it to do quite... others, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, Jeff Beck's album Flash included Hammer's song Escape. So Hammer wrote a song that Jeff Beck um, recorded. Yeah, yeah. And that won Beck a Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. Fair enough. Hammer then moved into writing original score music for documentaries and TV commercials. He's dabbled in everything. And then in 1984, he was enlisted by the producers of Miami Vice uh, to write the scores for the series. That's what they're called. Scores. Scores. I couldn't think of the word when I was listening to it. I was like, theme for a TV show, but they're not all called the themes, like when it's yeah. in a um, scene. Score. Yeah. After just one season, the soundtrack hit number one on the Billboard Top Pop album chart. Wow. And he the was brought out by Miami Vice. He didn't just go to him. No, they yeah, they had a, they they went to him and obviously gave him a contract to write the 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 song the the, the not the songs the, the, the theme the score the, the music the scores yeah. So the album went on to achieve sales of more than four million copies in the US, and Hammer went on to win two Grammy awards for the Miami Vice theme, best pop instrumental performance, and best instrumental composition hammer also won earned an emmy award nomination for outstanding achievement in musical composition at the end of 1986 hammer won the keyboard magazine's poll as best studio synthesis for the second consecutive year he had also previously won best lead Synthesis for the previous seven years in a row. So that wow. tells you how much little com competition there was for synthesis back then. Yeah. And how, how obviously he was seen. And as I say, you know, he was a pioneer. Mm -hmm. um, he was winning these awards, you know, it be it, when synthesizers were just coming into it. And he's already winning awards. And yeah. um, bear in mind, not many, although they were big in the UK, in the US, the UK bands didn't really make it big, not the synthesizer mm. bands in the US. Yeah. And yet there was Jan Hammer doing it. Doing it already. And, and um, you know, I suppose it was through his music, through Miami Vice, that people mm. knew, knew, knew him. And... Yeah. Do you know what's funny? And I'm sure it's this. So when I was doing, like, listening to the Miami Vice theme and whatnot, all I could think is there's been so many times, and I'm sure he said it to you as well, Connor's turned around and likened some of the 80s music that I've listened to. And he says, all I can think is the Miami Vice theme tune. He's likened so many to that theme tune. And now mm. I've got the guy that actually did the theme tune. Yep. And it was in the 80s. And, and that's all I could think of, while I was listening to him. And not not so much Miami Vice because that was like mid eighties, but mm. the the synthesizer tune. Yeah. You know, he a lot of I mean, people's not really mentioned Jan Hammer as being an influence. They always say craftwork. Yeah. Um, but 
he would yeah, have. He would have. You'd have thought he must have been up there. Surely, if he was, he's literally one of the first to do it. Yeah, if not the first. Yeah. Um. So a second single from the Miami Vice soundtrack, Rocket's Theme, which was the surname of the main character played by Don Johnson, was also released, and it reached number one in both Belgium and the Netherlands. In 1988, Hammer bowed out of the full-time musical scores for Miami Vice. Um, and although the show came back, the new people behind it wanted to nothing to do with the previous um, oh, show. Nice. So um, the they music and that wasn't, wasn't, yeah, wasn't, wasn't used. Oh, no. that's quite sad. In 1994, Hammer recorded Drive his first fully-fledged album of original non-soundtrack material under his own name for several years. Well, yeah, he'd been doing everything else. And on the track Underground, he reunited with Jeff Beck, who he'd obviously been in produced his album and also he wrote a song that Jeff Beck done, which won yeah. Jeff Beck a Grammy. Yeah. In 1995, Hammer went back to scoring um, soundtracks with the 2014 Squid Billies being his most recent for the American adult animated sitcom. sitcom. And in 2015, or might be 2018, I can't read my own writing, um, Hammer released his first album of new material in over 10 years with Seasons Part 1. So he's still going? He's still that going. That was 2015 or, was, or whatever. Yeah, yeah whichever my... Yeah. Uh, I think it's 2018. I don't want to say because it doesn't... I don't around. understand. But he is kind of still around, Jess. Wow. But he can do all sorts. He's talented. Very. Yeah. Very talented. Um, so his two two songs, yeah. Um, Nineteen eighty five, the Miami Vice theme, mm -hmm. got to number five. Okay, not bad. I thought what I thought that would be the number one if I was to have to take a wild guess. Obviously, I'm uh -huh. wrong. Um, it's just got a lot of elements to it. I've actually never heard it before because I've never watched Miami Vice or anything. Um, but yeah, it's just got a lot of layers, a lot going on. Okay. Um, I've just looked. It's 2018. Oh, okay. So quite recent. Yes. Uh, 1987, Crockett's Theme. That got to number two. It was also re-released in 1991, but only got to number 47. Oh, okay. Let's stick with the two. Um, this one's quite calm and sets the tone for that particular scene. And that was going on. Okay. Yeah, I think he's quite talented, him. Yeah, very. Very interesting. Moving on then to Divine. Yeah. So, again, I didn't know the genre. It was quite difficult um, with only two songs as well. Um, this person, a drag act, because um, they sing about, like, the drag life, you know, my two songs are you think like a, you think you're a man and walk like a man you know 
like I feel with the lyrics and being a man um it, it just I think they go a bit deeper um is it they're a bit of an entertainer and they've got a distinctive voice but they're not exactly talented and I feel like it's the drag drag act side of it that got them into the limelight rather than the actual singing um and I feel like it's I don't think drag queens were such a big thing in the 80s from my knowledge I'm not sure but they're definitely pushing the taboo with it in the 80s because it wouldn't have been a big thing and I guess it's doing like yes you had the new romantics but I think then they've gone over the hurdle of just doing the makeup side of it to actually doing the full show so it's quite interesting to have this um artist so divine born harris misstead sorry millstead right uh from baltimore maryland in the u.s mm -hmm. active since 1966 an actor singer and as you say, drag queen artists. Yeah. So Milstead developed an early interest in drag while working as a woman's hairdresser. Okay. By the mid-1960s, he had embraced the city's counter-cultural scene and befriended independent filmmaker John Waters, who gave him the name Divine, as well as the tagline the most beautiful woman in the world, dot, 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 almost. See, I didn't know drag acts were around, or not even mm. drag acts, but like that type of community. I didn't mm. know that it was like that, people were that open with it that you could find people to support you and go in that. I weren't expecting you to say But then this is 1960s in America. Oh, yeah. So, I guess it's different to over here. So, along with David Lockery, he joined Waters' acting troupe, the Dreamlanders, and adopted female roles for their experimental short films, Roman Candles in 1966, Eat Your Makeup in 1968, and the Diane Linkletter story in 1969. Then also in drag, he took the lead role in both of Waters' early full-length movies, Mondo Trasho in 1969 and Multiple Maniacs in 1970. The latter attracted press attention for the group and Milstead next starred in Waters' Pink Flamingo in 1972, which was a hit on the US midnight movie circuit and became a cult classic and established Milstead's fame in the American counterculture. Divine then moved into theatre and then starred in two cinematic movies of Waters, Polyester in 1981 and Hairspray in 1988. Okay. The latter, which was Milstead's breakthrough in mainstream cinema, and was nominated for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Male. He also appeared in a number of other films not made by Waters. In 1985, sorry, in, 
1985 okay so in between right. um polyester and hairspray he yeah. he done other He's films done, yeah. but not by waters yeah um in 1985 Divine had embarked on a career in the then wavering disco industry, because obviously we are now coming to oh, the yeah. mid 80s and pretty much disco is now, you know, going, oh, as we know yeah. from the Bee Gees and all the others yeah, yeah. that had seen it in from the late 70s, early 80s was now definitely being taken over. Yeah, yeah. However, he he still went into it. And he performed on a number of the high energy tracks, most of which were written by Bobby Orlando, best known for producing the Pet Shop Boys hit West End Girls. Divine achieved international chart success with hits You Think You're a Man, I'm So Beautiful and Walk Like a Man all of which were performed in drag. Yes, because his videos were in drag, and I was like, that hats off. So Divine had a condition called cardiomegalogy stress, oh, sorry, called cardiomegaly, and stress on his enlarged heart led to a heart attack. So calm... Cardiomegaly is like an enlarged heart, obviously, and the stress right. on that, yeah, because of him having this condition, led to a heart the, attack, yeah, that killed him oh. shortly after the release of Hairspray, aged just 42. Oh, so Hairspray went on to be a big hit, it would have probably made him, you know, helped his career definitely. But unfortunately, he um, had this heart attack just after it had released. So Divine, it was the inspiration for Ursula, the sea witch, who was the villain in Disney's 1989 animated film, The Little Mermaid. So Waters has since claimed that some fans have sexual intercourse on the grave of divine it's a bit odd. which he believes divine would love that's a bit odd very odd that's very weird so divine weird. identified as a gay man but he avoided discussing gay rights partially at the advice of his manager realizing that it would yeah. have been had a negative effect Career, which let's be honest it probably would have yeah, yeah um so although he's drag and obviously you know plays off the drag with regards um films I mean, and the the songs um i think it would probably been a bit too far to have to have gone the whole gay in the 80s yeah and i think also him being a drag act probably speaks volume anyway well yeah you'd think it would have but it's, it just shows you that still didn't make it any out. easier to come out. Yeah, that is true. Even then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so they said it would have, his manager said it would have had a negative effect on his career. Um, and Divine initially avoided informing the media about his sexuality. Even when questioned by interviewers, he would, although he would sometimes hint that he was bisexual. 
But in the latter part of the 80s, he changed his attitude and began being open about his homosexuality. And hence, but then it shows the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like later on. So, um, and hence we know, now know for definite, even though he's died, he was gay. So, yes. So, yeah, so your first drag artist, really. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was something. something Although, you know, you've had, as you say, Boy George. Yeah, like you've had like the new romantics and the people, you know, really using makeup to um, express themselves and whatnot. But this Mm. is a literal drag drag act, not just. The new romantics, you know, that's who they are. Mm. So, 1984, you think you were a man? Got to number 16. Okay. Vocals are quiet. Um, Got a good beat, but it's a bit bit harsh, bit in your face, I think, the, the music itself. Okay. And 1985, Walk Like a Man, got to number 23. That was my favourite. It's very catchy and it felt very 80s to me. Okay. So that ends this week. Yeah. As you say. See what I mean by it got weird. Different. You start off with, yeah, let's say different. But you start off with Alexander O'Neill and then it just kind of. And end with the vine. (laughs) Well, yeah, but even the middle, forget the ending as well. The things that were happening in the middle, you know. Okay. So all I need to know now is how influenced you have been with these. Yeah. Hit or miss. Alexander. Well, I'll be lucky if I get one, I think. (laughs) Uh, I think Alexander O'Neill might might get us over the line. And you you seemed like you liked Jan Hammer, so maybe two. Okay. Alexander O'Neill. He was a hit. He's got a beautiful voice. Yes. I did enjoy having that and I would go back to him. Okay. Julio Iglesias. Miss. For Enrique's dad. Yeah. But I like Enrique. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Hardcastle. A big fat miss like i just don't understand how that and i just can't see anyone in this day and age liking that type of music either okay falco right a miss i do i am intrigued and i do like him but not enough to carry on and you know he did. He, I was toying with a hit because um, I'm intrigued by him, but all in all, I don't think he'd hit nowadays. So, he, and he's not that big a hit with me. Okay, Jan Hammer. Miss. Just I don't know. Like it sounded all right, and he. Do you know what? Hats off to him. He's a. He is a talented man, but in listening, I'd I'd like to meet him. I bet we, I bet I could, I could probably listen to about his life story, read his autobiography. But his actual music, um, and 
going off nowadays and charting and all that is a miss. Okay. But he sounds interesting in a personal way. Yeah. And divine. Miss. I'm just not, I don't think it's a very talented um, singing wise. Hats off to him for being a drag queen and, you know, doing what they do. But yeah. Not about the actual music. Okay. Three number ones, three separate artists, all a miss. Yeah. It weren't a good week, Dad. Yeah. I will tell you. No. Well, I dread to think what next week would be like. Oh, don't say that. So are you ready to know who you've got? I don't know now. Uh, I don't know either. I'm going to give you them anyway. Okay. We'll see how it goes. I could surprise you. Yeah, true. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, you've got a bloke called George Michael. I don't know who George Michael is. I'm joking with you. That's why. Oh. <laughs> you've got another bloke called Rick Astley. Yeah. Um, you've also got Matt Bianco. No, I don't. Although I do recognise that name. Not maybe you've spoken about him before. Glenn Frey. No. John Cougar. Melancomp Camp. No. And Kenny G. No. Were you being sarcastic that you don't know how this week's going to go? Of course I was. I was, I was going to say. I was going to say. On it and Rick Astley. But I might not like their music. Oh, you might I know not. I know they are. I might not like them. Like, we have had, like, think of how many big people you've given us. Shaken Stevens was out on his own for a while. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll see. Uh, yes. Okay. Right, so, that is your your um six for next week mm-hmm. so i'll just say them again george michael rick astley matt bianco glenn frey jean cougar melancomp and kenny g okay okay yes so i shall get you those songs over to you yeah and um i think we'll have a bit of a better week than this week let's hope <laughs> so after that, that other than that, that's all I have to say. Bit of a flop, but you still got one. You like, got one. It so, take um, it, Dad. Take that. So yes, okay. All right then. I will see you next week. Yeah. Right. Bye. 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 Bye.